0: Hey, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from the cult of perfection to live bolder, braver, happier lives. For this episode, I'm bringing you a conversation with a woman I have such deep admiration and respect for. Melody Hobson is the co-CEO of Ariel Investments, and her influence extends far beyond her important role building and shaping one of the largest black-owned investment companies in the country. She sits on more boards than I can even count to share her expertise and innovative thinking with so many organizations across the country. And you might be surprised to learn there's a character based on her in the hit show, The Good Wife. Yep, Melody is a force of nature, and it's such an honor and a joy to know her. I had an incredible conversation with Melody in front of a virtual audience of Girls Who Code students. She shared some of her secrets to creativity and success, the challenging times in her life that taught her resilience and the importance of giving young people a strong financial education. I am so excited to share this powerful conversation with you right now. So Melody, I read an interview where you talked about having a teacher in a school who gave you a rubber band and asked you to find an alternative use for it. Uh, And you at the last minute realized that it could be an eraser. So much of the innovation in tech is about finding new solutions to problems that
1: you have right in front of you. What helps you innovate and to think out of the box? To your question about how do I innovate and how do I, Think outside of the box. I always say, whenever I get that question about thinking outside of the box, I start by saying, Why is it a box? (laughs) That's just my first thing. It's like, it's such a, it has become such a cliche in so many ways. So that's its own version of thinking differently. I think my best ideas come from taking a page from other industries sometimes. So in the financial services industry, people present a certain way, they think a certain way, they act a certain way. And I can mash up just like a song. I can mash up industries and say, what if we take from this and take from this and do this here? And so some of my innovation is borrowed. It's just borrowed from places that are not normally associated with the area in which I work. And I think some of my innovation also comes from that Ariel is our openness to bringing in all sorts of different voices. So we innovate through diversity and inclusion. It's not enough to have diverse people around the table. You have to listen to them. I'm doing this project today. We're doing some rebranding of our firm and we're trying to come up with um, a new way of writing our name and a whole bunch of things, new colors, everything is being redone. And I told our team, no editing, blank pages. I don't want you to edit anything. I want blank pages, start over. And there's a young woman we're interviewing to work on this brand effort with us. She hasn't even been hired yet. And I said, could you be on the phone? And it's just, it's just a funny thing because I'm like, I want all sorts of voices. We're working on this brand and I've sent it out to everyone from the head of marketing at JP Morgan to the person where I buy clothes and all of these voices I want to hear. So I innovate. That's like crowdsource innovation maybe innovate by bringing lots of different opinions and different voices together and see if I see themes or if someone calls my attention to something that I'm missing. I started off by first looking outside of my industry and then, you know, mashing up some things that I saw outside of the industry and then being open to lots of opinions.
0: I love that. I love that. No editing blank pieces of paper. I'm going to, no,
1: it's very, it's very easy. To edit, it is, you know, my husband said this once. some of you may know, I joke, I married Yoda's dad, my husband made Star Wars, and he said, Melody, there's nothing harder than a blank piece of paper when you're writing, nothing. And as students, you all know what he's talking about. That first time you have to write that paper or to produce that story or whatever it is, there's nothing harder. It's so much easier to edit. And so pushing yourself to work from like pieces of paper, which is what you do when you're coding, I think is something that's really important.
0: Yeah, I hope my team is listening. I'm gonna apologize because we were trying to rebrand Girls Who Code. I was like, don't touch the logo or the colors, I love them. So did that one all wrong. Um, You talked about how we need to rethink what we're teaching our, our kids in school and introduce them to financial literacy earlier. I agree, and I also want to see a stronger presence of CS classes in schools, especially now. I mean, technology has shifted everything in the past six months, and it's our most vulnerable kids are being left behind. You know, the girls that are here uh, listening to you today are in high school. And what
1: do you wish they were being taught about finance and the economy? One thing I want to say is I think you and your area has a leg up on what's happening with finance. I have a now seven-year-old. She took coding in kindergarten. She has coding as a part of her core curriculum. I wish I could get schools to understand they need financial literacy as part of their core curriculum. And what I want to have a situation whereas today in high school in America, today, you can take woodshop or auto. And I always ask people, who whittles? Like who cleans their own carburetor? No one. You can take those classes and not classes on basic finance and investing. And I'm not talking home ec where you learn to write a check or pay a utility bill. I'm talking investing where you learn the difference between the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P. And you learn about the things that ultimately will determine the type of retirement or the type of life you will have when it comes to saving and investing. I want those lessons taught in elementary school. And that's what we do at the Ariel Community Academy, which is a school we started, my firm started. We started savings and investing curriculum in our school starting in first grade. And we give every first grade class $20,000 to invest. And it follows them through their grade school career. And they take over increasing responsibilities for managing the money. That's what I want to see happen in our society, when saving and investing, financial literacy is a rite of passage and not something you're figuring out when you're 22 years old and you've gotten your first job and you've got to pick investment options for your 401k plan.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, my parents came here as refugees and I didn't get taught this. I got taught to save and put everything essentially under my, you know, under my bed. And it really didn't serve me in my twenties because I was not able to take risks You know, I mean, when I did have a little bit of money to spend and I wasn't able to really grow wealth. And so I I could not agree with you more because I think in many, many ways, we're taught to have this funny relationship with money and it holds us back, you know, from our fullest potential. Um, Your background is so impressive. And I've heard you talk about how you've always gone above and beyond to make yourself indispensable. And I think so many of us, especially black and brown women, we've struggled with imposter syndrome and we felt like we can't ever afford to mess up, right? Our mothers, our fathers told us you got to be better. You know what I mean? And sometimes they told us not, you know, to shrink ourselves and to just follow the rules and play along. I mean, and we have very few role models, I think, of of black and brown women moving out of that. It's, it's shifting. I mean, reading how Michelle Obama yesterday said that she is suffering from depression was just huge for me and my friends um, because we felt like we weren't alone. And so what has been your experience with imposter syndrome and how have you
1: dealt with it? I've been asked this question a lot and my answer is not lacking in empathy, but it is my truth. And I say there is, Truth with a small T, that's my truth. And there's truth with a capital T, the truth. Um, My truth is that I haven't struggled with it. I felt like I belonged everywhere that I was. I did this as a funny story when I was getting an award at Princeton once. I talked about how no one in my family had gone to college. And I arrived on the Princeton campus and I looked around and I felt like I belong here. And no one expected me to say that. And why I say that is, I think of imposter syndrome can be stamped out with one thing, preparation. When you are prepared, you are confident. And I know for me, when I am prepared, I am very, very confident. You don't feel like an imposter when you know your stuff. And that's the thing about black and brown people, women. You know, we do our homework. We tend not to be cavalier about just showing up. We really don't. And so as a result of that, if you can call on that preparation to help you to understand you belong there. I did all the work. I studied as much as everyone else. I got good grades. I had high SAT scores, like all of that stuff I did. So why didn't I belong? I belonged. And the one thing that is also super interesting, and I say this with so much humility, because it's not going to sound very humble. It took me a little while. And I don't know... I wish I had learned this one earlier than I did. My business partner who started my firm told me this when I first started working at Ariel. He said, Melody, you're going to be in rooms with people who have big titles and make a lot of money. It doesn't mean they have better ideas. What I did not realize is a lot of those people with big titles who made a lot of money would be mediocre. And when you realize they're mediocre, you're like, come on, you know, like you've done the work, you've prepared and they're winging it. And I don't mean to say that in a disparaging way, but it also just, you know, it lets you know you belong here. So you will all see this in your own ways. Those of us who have made it to the levels that we've made it, we had to do a lot.
0: I'll say it. There are so many mediocre white men. And that was my biggest (laughs) revelation because you know, I get asked to speak at places. And so I get, they let me in their dinner parties and I get to kind of listen to what's happening. And I'm like, holy cow, what? And I tell women this, like, let me tell you the secret, right? They are not as smart as you think they are. There is no meritocracy. And if there was one, we are at the top of the line.
1: That's exactly right. Right? The other part of the, the struggle that we've all endured, you know, in our own way as women, and if you're a woman in business, there is a struggle. And if you come from a disadvantaged background, you have to overlay a lot with that. But I had a white man who was a very good person named Teddy Forsman who's no longer alive once say to me, remember Melody, the best wine is grown in the toughest soil. Mm. I'm not a wine drinker. But he said, when you gotta break through rocks and gnarly branches and everything, you produce some great grapes. And I thought that was the allegory for people. When you have to go through that tough soil you become a very, very sweet grape.
0: Yeah, it's so true and it's so true right now when you're, we're living through this global health crisis that like those of us have, who've gone through some things, right, and who have like learned resilience may be having a different experience in some ways. You know, what are some of the things that you're trying to change from the top to bring more diversity to your firm? I mean, it feels like the conversation has shifted a little in some of the rooms that I'm in amongst white people, what's the opportunity there and what can we demand? I mean, is this the moment we actually really demand a shift in numbers and not just, because sometimes they think, you know, when they add one of us, oh, they've done their job, but it doesn't actually change the culture in any way, shape
1: or form. So I think it is a time for demands, and I think it's no different than what we saw in the civil rights era. In the civil rights era, King demanded that the laws be changed. I mean, that was really what that was about. He demanded that schools be integrated, that lunch counters not be segregated. He demanded that you didn't have different water fountains. He said separate but equal is illegal. First of all, we knew it wasn't equal, but it's not right. And so that those were the demands then. I think the demands that we should see right now are that corporate America really understands its responsibility to have organizations that look like our society and hold them accountable for that. We talk about the three Ps, people, purchasing, and philanthropy in corporate America. We think that math has no opinion. If it matters, it should be counted and incentives should be tied to it. So when it comes to people, all these organizations talk about how they've been working at diversity. As Yoda says, do or do not, there is no try. You don't get partial credit for showing your work on diversity and still getting the wrong answer, like math class when you're in third grade. So from this perspective, this idea of counting across every level of the organization, from the board to all rank and file employees, what is your employees base look like versus the demographics of our country and set goals we have targets for everything else. There are targets for corporate earnings. There are targets for product launch dates. There are targets for profitability. I could go on and on and on. We're used to that. When it comes to purchasing, think about all the businesses that you can do business with. Are we being fair and equitable and using firms that are run by diverse people? To the point of that conversation I had earlier, does everyone get a chance? Quoting Jesse Jackson, he said baseball wasn't as good as it could be until Jackie Robinson could play. That means that you want the best people on the field. And if you have the best people on the field, you get a better outcome. And then last but not least, making sure the philanthropy is also fair and equitable. That we're seeing a lot more of right now. But I want to make sure people don't think that writing a check excuses them from fixing their own house. That's right. And I think to do that, too, we have to... because. Often what comes with this
0: conversation is, but but I wanna lower the bar. And so we have to have an honest conversation about white privilege and about meritocracy and about the fact
1: that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So here's my favorite example. I went to Princeton. If you apply to Princeton and you're in a legacy, meaning that you come from a family that went to Princeton, you have a much better chance of getting in the school than someone who has no ties to the university. That is not a pure meritocracy. So now by virtue of just being born to me, my daughter has a better shot of getting into Princeton than I did. That's how you perpetuate systems of exclusion. And that doesn't make Princeton a bad place. It works. There are a lot of reasons to bring those families in that have a history with the school. But let's just call it what it is. You know, that's just a fact. And these are the most revered and successful education institutions in the world. That's how it works. So, you know, I'm not saying they have to change the system. Let's just acknowledge that that's how the system exists. I've never seen a pure meritocracy anywhere. I've yep. never seen that. Yep.
0: And that's why I think the conversation in your industry and adventure in venture is like, well, let's mentor. No, 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 invest. Like invest. Black and brown people don't need more mentorship.
1: They need capital. They need customers. Yeah. If you have customers, you can get capital. Just be clear about that. Everyone talks about access to capital. It's access to customers. If I've got customers, I can go to a bank and say, lend me money against these expected receivables. But if I don't have any customers, I got nothing.
0: Right. Right. So question from Taylor in New York. What resources do you suggest for girls who never had the opportunity to learn financial literacy
1: from schools or from their families? So let's start off with just something super simple the newspaper. If you're in New York and if you read the New York Times, and if you just open up the business section and just literally start perusing it every day, start trying to understand the language and the conversation that, you know, I tell people a lot of people in their local areas, they read the front and the back of the paper. the the major news headlines and the sports in the back. And I want you to read the middle. I I want you to read those business sections and become attuned to the language of business. That is an easy first place to start. Beyond that, I can tell you there's a book that I love. It's my favorite book I've ever read on investing. It's about the greatest investor of all time. His name is Warren Buffett. You may also know he's one of the richest people in America. And the book is called Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. It's page turner i'm not joking i know you'll think like she's a real geek she's like saying this book is a page turner but it really is amazing to see how someone thinks about money and investing in such a thoughtful and logical way i once heard him give a speech and he said everyone thinks i'm looking for a needle in a haystack i just look for haystacks he invests in companies like coca-cola and bank of america and american express not some Biotech company that may or may not make it with some new uh, drug, and so really he invests in the obvious, but in the obvious in a way that that makes it a, a, an unbelievable brand or franchise. So Buffett, The Making of the American Capitalist. If, if you read that, I promise you it'll get you hooked. That's a, a great place to start.
0: I'm downloading it right after we hang up. That's oh, I'm excited. Uh, Ria from Florida. What's the biggest obstacle you faced throughout schooling in your career?
1: I had a lot. I mean, there were a lot of things that, that were really tough for me. So I grew up in a family in Chicago and the youngest of six kids. And, um, we just had a really tough time. We used to get evicted all the time and our lights get used to get disconnected and our cars used to get repossessed. My mom used to borrow gas to take me to school at the gas station. And, um, there was just, I I joke with people that I remember my first check. It was the bounce check of my mom on the wall at the grocery store. Um, and I was ashamed. I had so much shame and I was so sad about it. And, um, even now it brings up such feelings of emotion. It's very hard for me to even still manage and I'm 51 years old. So it shows I still am dealing with it. And, um, All I wanted was a better life. I just wanted to like know when I laid my head down, I would know where I'd wake up the next day. And so I had really, really, really simple goals. And when I got my first job out of college, I was like, I was thrilled I could just pay my bills. I mean, literally like that brought me joy. It wasn't about having a lot of money. It was just like knowing I have a phone. It's not gonna be disconnected. I would come home and go to sleep and just literally be in my bed thanking God for like such a comfortable environment. And my apartment was 800 square feet. It was really, really small, but I was so happy for it. But that, that whole period made me very, very resilient. It was really bad at times. I mean, really, really, really bad. Sometimes we lived in abandoned buildings and things like that, but I could persevere and I still can. And if you took everything I have away from me right now today, I promise you, I know how to exist. That is a gift because a lot of people can't do that. So those of you who are out there who are struggling and you're thinking this is unbearable, you are creating so much resilience in yourself that will make you a warrior one day. If you look at my Instagram page, it says happy warrior. I'm a warrior. And I'll give you one last part, which is a little bit of a joke. So we're in a pandemic. I'm home with my little girl and my husband. And my husband used to go to breakfast out at a little diner every day in the morning. And I would travel all the time. And now, of course, you can't do any of that. So every day I make breakfast. And he's like, oh, my God, you can like make eggs all these ways. You can do all these things. I was like, I'm black. We can do anything. I said, if you told me tomorrow I had to do this, 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 I could do it because I have gone through enough, this is nothing in the scheme of things of what I've dealt with. And I literally say that, I joke with people all the time. I'm like, Black, Latinx, who've gone through tough times, do not count us out because we are capable of a lot. And if you took away everything I have, everything, and you told me tomorrow, Melody, I use this example all the time, you have to go sell shoes at Neiman Marcus, or Macy's or Nordstrom's or whatever story you want to say, JC Fenny. in a year, I'll be the number one salesperson in the country. Yeah. That's how I feel about my abilities. And I would proudly be calling you rush to sell you some shoes.
0: <laughs> and I would buy them
1: probably several
0: pairs of them. So i from California. Thank you so much, Mrs. Hobson for coming to talk to us today. I've always struggled with making my voice heard in school robotics clubs since middle school as a young hijabi Muslim brown girl. My engineering teacher has often belittled girls' abilities in his class. What advice do you have to push through constant discrimination
1: and come out strong? First, this is not what you wanna hear. Steal yourself to the fact it's going to continue to exist. I mean, that's like, It's like armor you have to have, but keep your authenticity and your vulnerability at the same time. I always tell people, my mom started to tell me about all the things I'd be up against when I was six years old. She was just very, very direct. Like you are gonna have a harder road, but there are no excuses. She would say that to me over and over and over again. So that's one thing. You may not convert this teacher who's not a good person probably, and bad people do exist. But you can also make sure he doesn't defeat you in terms of your own sense of self and the dreams that you have. Don't let people kill your dreams. So that would be my first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, again, do the work. The more you do the work, the more excellent you are, the more you exceed expectations. It becomes very, very, very hard for people to hold you down. And I know with the the racism that we have in this country around Muslims, I can only imagine what you go through on a day-to-day basis. And I only have more respect for you that you stand up for your beliefs and your religion and you don't let others change you. I think you earn a great deal of respect and admiration from a lot of people, including me, but just know the road doesn't necessarily get easier. I wish I could say that, but we get stronger. You develop mental memory to these moments and that mental memory will get you through. I like this
0: question, Maria from Florida. What is your biggest goal for yourself at this moment?
1: Wow, okay. I really wanna grow my company into being something really great. I'm calling it Ariel 2.0. And it's the 2.0 is we had the 1.0, which was the first 36 years, but I became co-CEO last year. So I'm like, this is the melody era. I wanna actually leave a legacy that shows black people can break mental models around finance because when people think of a person in the financial field or an investment manager, they think of a white guy. They don't think of me or my some of my colleagues at Ariel. But I want to show them how great we can be. It's like I'm pulling this giant rock up a hill. It's really, really hard. It's also very, very fulfilling. And so that's like top of mind at this moment. And I for like the next decade, I'm going all out, all out on this. And then the last thing, which is The most important is I want my girl to be a good girl. I really, I'm working so hard to make sure my daughter understands the values that are really important and that she's raised to really appreciate the tremendous life that she's been given and that she understands she has to give that back to society. She is bearing a huge burden because she has everything two loving parents, tremendous resources, the best schools money can buy. You name it, she has it. She has what a lot of us never ever had and she owes society for that. And I'm gonna hold her to that. And not in a way of pressure, but in terms of a very high expectation.
0: I love that, thank you. You made me laugh, made me cry, made me think. I always walk away feeling fortunate to hear your wisdom. Thank you again for everything that you're doing and always supporting Girls Who Code. That was Melody Hobson, co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Thank you so much to all the students who asked such thoughtful questions and thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Brave Not Perfect podcast. And if you enjoyed today's show, be sure to tell a friend or share it on social media. That really helps the word get out about our show. Brave Not Perfect comes out
1: every other Tuesday. See you soon. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonik and Charlotte Stone. And of course our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. Andrea Jordan, Rush Musajani, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page. Zenzele Skylark, Elisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks!